right. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm excited. I hope everybody else is excited today. Um, it's been a really good week so far. We're, we're already past the midway point, uh, so we've got today and tomorrow. Um, but I'm really excited about this session, so hopefully you guys will be excited too. Um, <clears throat> as we've looked throughout this week, you know, I, I hope that we're we're all beginning to to build some some pictures in our in our mind, and I'm sure if there was a way to to survey the room and see how all the different pictures that are being uh, put together, uh, it would be interesting to to take a look. And as people are thinking about application and ways to um, you know go back to your to your homes or whatever the next steps for you look like, uh, to see what's going to uh, come about. My hope and prayer is that all of us walk away this week from uh, being able to, to, to really think about what we need to do to be effective disciples of Jesus Christ. So today uh, we want to look at practical steps, uh, practical steps for evangelism, for making disciples. Um, let's do a little bit of review. I always like to kind of see the road that we've traveled to know where we're going and try to recall some of those concepts that we've looked at because you, you guys have taken in a lot of information this week. Um, I was talking with somebody else. It's kind of like uh, drinking from a fire hose <laughs> a bit, you know, and so we're going to see, I mean, at the end, who knows what's going to stick and what's not going to, um, but that's the importance of being able to take notes, right? So you can go back and uh, look at your notes. Go ahead. What's your title one more time? Oh, uh, Practical Steps. Practical Steps. Practical Steps. <clears throat> So we looked at yesterday the Jesus road to salvation. Um, and as we looked at that, we looked at several different passages, but we, we saw that he starts with a call to repent and to follow. And the result is that he would make us fishers of men. It was a call to righteousness, a call to be, to be co sorry, complete or perfect, that it's a narrow way that a few will find Obedience is life and love with Christ. It's a call to lose our lives, to come to Jesus and to learn, sacrifice to gain, take up your cross and follow after Jesus daily, and baptism, the means by which we are cleansed and enter into the kingdom. Now, uh, who can... Tell me, what is our running definition for the week for discipleship, the one that Matthew gave us? Go ahead, Dom. Very good. Someone who allows Jesus access to their whole self, right, to their entire life, to everything being opened. Um, we looked at that first day. Uh, we looked in the book of Judges, and the end of Judges says that there's no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own vision, in their own eyes. Um, but we don't have that claim, right? We have the claim that there is a king, and that king does have a vision. And his vision is well articulated in a, a certain prayer. And what is that vision? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? As it is in heaven, right? And the way that we can go about participating in that, there's various ways in which we can do that, but one major way is by making disciples where? In all the earth, right? In all the earth. All right. <clears throat> Turn to Mark chapter 5. 
and we're going to look at a story. So Mark chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 25. If you want to read along, read along. If you'd like to maybe close your eyes and try to envision yourself at the scene. So whether you want to leave your eyes open or close them or read along. But either way, try to picture being in the crowd. Try to think about, okay, what would, it, what would the sounds be like? What would it smell like? What would it... What, it, what would it be like to be in the midst of the situation that we're going to read in this story? So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 25. I think I said 23. Starting in verse 25. Sorry, actually starting in 21. I'll need to correct that. I'm going to start up in 21. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side... A great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue, named Jairus by name, came and saw him, and fell at his feet, and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him. And a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Okay, let me just stop there for a moment. For those of you, I mean, anyone's able to answer, but especially those of you who are fathers. What, what do you think, what kind of emotion is, is coming across as J.R.S. is running to Jesus? He's one of the leaders of the synagogues, and he's coming up to Jesus. What do you think he's feeling? What's going through his mind if you have to put yourself in his shoes? Desperation. Fear. Fear. Urgency. Urgency. Right? Because she's, she's sick to the point of what? Of death. What else do you think you'd be feeling? If you were, if you were in J.R.S.'s shoes and it was your daughter, what would you be feeling? I'd be scared. Scared. <laughs> Sorry? Hope Yeah. It seems like he, he's, he must have heard the stories or maybe he's seen a little bit of what Jesus has done. And so he, he, he seems to obviously at a point of desperation, but he, he must have some sort of hope that, that Jesus can address the issue, right? Pain? Heartfelt pain? Very good. All right, well, let's continue in the story. So, so Jesus has stepped out of the boat. He's, he's crossed over the other side. He's stepped out. This man, I mean, picture if you happen to be one of the people in the crowd, this man running up, Jesus, come. My daughter, she's sick to the point of death. Come now. And so Jesus begins to follow, and the crowds follow as well. Now, a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. So let me stop there. What's this woman feeling? 
what's she thinking? I mean, she's, she's, been, she's had this condition, whatever it is, for, for 12 years. She spent all of her money on physicians, hoping that it would, would help, and, and the problem is it's worse. So what is she feeling? Sorry? Desperation. Desperation. Yeah, absolutely. Mentally, physically, spiritually worn down. Probably, probably feels like losing hope in the systems that are in place that are supposed to help her. You know, it seems like are the doctors just taking her money because she's not even improving at all, but she's continuing to pay them, and now she's out of money. What else? Any other thoughts, feelings? She has a lively hope and a faith. Mm-hmm. A lively hope and a faith. She's hurt. She has heard the stories of Jesus, and she's, she's like, if only I can reach out and just touch his garment, I know I can be made well, right? I mean, that is, that is some profound, strong, deep faith, right? All right, let's continue. 29, it says, immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that the power had gone out from him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, you see the multitudes throng, and you say, who touched me? He looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the, the whole truth. Okay, so let me just stop there for the moment. It gives us an indication of what she's feeling, right? I mean, the disciples are a little bit puzzled because it's like, <laughs> like I can only imagine, uh, in Uganda we go like this when, something, when there's jam or when things are packed and there's many people. And so Jesus, his disciples are like, there's, there's a lot of people here. Like, what do you mean who touched you? But Jesus knew there was something. There's someone who touched him that, that, that was different because something flowed from him to her to heal her. And Jesus is looking around and it says that she's, she's with fear and trembling. Right? How is he going to respond? What, what if that was you? Think about like if you were in that position, what would be going through your mind? I mean, in, in, in the society and things, I mean, this was, from Jewish standards, she was definitely in the camp of unclean, right? And this is, this is the rabbi, this is Jesus, the one that we're hearing these things, and it seems like he might be the Messiah, but then we're not so sure, and some people like him, and some people hate him, and here she reaches out and touches him. And it says that she falls down before him and told him the whole truth. Now pause for a moment. What, what happened at the very beginning of the story? Where was Jesus going? Yeah, to go and heal Jairus' daughter. Okay, so, so picture the scene for the moment, okay? Especially you fathers. Wait, like... Okay, we're, we're traveling great. Okay, we've got Jesus in the entourage. We're heading to the house. We're going to heal. And then it's, wait a second. 
whoa, Jesus, there's no time for this woman. Like she's unclean. Like there's a big crowd and Jesus is actually engaging with this woman. Like how do you think Jairus is feeling at that moment? <laughs> yeah, hurry up, right? I mean, he's already said, like, we need to make haste. Like, come on, she's, she's sick to the point of death. Like, there's moment, we're, we're not looking at, like, days and weeks here. Like, we're looking at, at minutes and seconds, and every moment counts. Lady, I'm sorry that you're suffering. My child is going to die. I'm sure he, I mean, I can only imagine the, the emotions that's welling up inside of him, like, Okay, what's going to happen? Jesus is supposed to come and heal my daughter. This isn't working out. And Jesus is engaging in this conversation, hearing her the whole truth. Because I'm, I'm sure she probably didn't just start at the point of, oh, I, I reached out and I touched your garment. Sorry about that. Like, I mean, she probably started, I can only imagine, she started from the, the beginning and talked about how for 12 years she suffered and wasted all her money and she heard the stories about Jesus, and she knew that, that if I just reach out and touch you, I know I can be made well. And that's probably the condensed version of, of her story that she actually told him. And notice how Jesus responds to her. Verse 34. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Could you imagine receiving that kind of response? He calls her daughter. Like that's, that, uh, you know, a, a relationship between a father and his children and a father and his daughter is a very intimate, very close relationship. And this woman, this is the first time she's She's ever been able to even get close enough to approach Jesus. And her faith is so strong that Jesus calls her daughter. That's amazing. And it, and it really shows something about Jesus and his concern and his care and his ability to see people. Now we have to go back to Jairus. <laughs> Jairus, okay, great, yep. Daughter, great. Okay, let's go. We got like, can we keep the train moving? Like, this is so good. I'm so, I'm so glad. Um, glad you got healed, lady. Um, my daughter. You know, I, I, I mean, I know that would be me. I don't, I don't know Jr.'s disposition, but I'd be like, okay, let's, yeah, let's keep her moving here. Um, and and 35, it says, while he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Well, at least we tried. Sorry, Jesus. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Thanks for trying to get there, but she's dead. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid. Only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. We don't 
probably get a full sense of this here. Um, maybe to a certain degree, I don't know, maybe you guys have been to different, different funerals. Um, in East Africa, people are very loud with their emotions. If they're excited, you know they're excited. Um, and if they're weeping and mourning over something, I mean, there is, there is loud, like, weeping and wailing. Like, it's sometimes un uncomfortably loud. You're just like, I mean, the, the situation is, is emotional and strong, but it's almost like if you don't come from that kind of a culture, it can be a little bit, like, uncomfortable because, you know, we, typically we, we can show some emotion, but, I mean, at least I, I grew up a little bit more. Like, you got to kind of tone it down, you know. Keep, keep, you can show some, but keep most of it kind of in, whereas they just kind of let it all out. So I can only imagine the scene here is there, there's a bunch of people and they're wailing and they're weeping and, and, uh, and Jesus strolls in and he says, when he came in, he said to them, why make this commotion? <laughs> I mean, imagine that, like they're, they're mourning what the, the loss of what's taking place here and, and Jesus is like, what's the fuss about? Why are we making this commotion? I, the, Jesus, he's, <laughs> the, his ability to like, I don't, he's a genius. He's an absolute genius. Why make this commotion and weep? The child's not dead, but, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was laying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given her to eat. So Jairus doesn't just get a healing, he gets a resurrection. Imagine that story. Sometimes bad things happen, sometimes terrible things happen. And it's bad enough that Jairus's daughter was sick. It's a tragedy, it's terrible that his daughter died. But instead of a healing, he gets a resurrection story. And that just seems to be the way Jesus works in these things. Beyond our understanding, beyond what we think, when Jesus enters into the situation, he changes the outcomes. So we're going to do a little bit of what we did yesterday. This is another Discovery Bible Study practice time here. So what do you like or find challenging about this story? I like it and find it challenging that Jesus never, ever is in a hurry. Mm. He doesn't allow the, the, um, the urgency of the situation to, to cause him to, to, to rush, is what you would say, right? Yeah. Okay. I like the fact that he's very compassionate with Hmm. <laughs> every situation very compassionate right yeah he he doesn't on his way to do an act of compassion doesn't miss the opportunity to still meet others with compassion along the way very that's a very good observation I like how he 
and it wouldn't seem like he knew her before. Right. Mm -hmm. He really didn't have to stop and talk to her at all. He could have just been like, great, healed somebody and kept going. Right. But he took the time to acknowledge her, encourage her, affirm like, that for her. I think that's awesome. Right. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's another great point. I mean, you know, the, the healing took place. Like, it could have been like, okay, good, we got another one. You know, and, and just kind of kept moving and, and kept things going, but he doesn't. He's like, he stops, and, and he actually addresses her, looks her in the eyes, sees her for who she is, and, and engages with her. Did, just related to that, I, I think that part of his compassion there is accepting her. She's somebody who's been unclean mm. Right. Yep. <laughs> Very good. One thing I found challenging was how um, he didn't tell the dad that he's gonna like resurrect his daughter. Like that actually be like more powerful, more exciting. It's like a miracle. But he didn't like no hang on. You know, I, I have bigger plans than this. But like he like left in like suspense or almost like work it out to be able to do a bigger miracle. But he didn't like explain it. Like he just he just kind of mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, leave the suspense. Yeah, yeah. Jairus was had just in mind. Hey, we just need a healing here, mm -hmm. and Jesus is like, we got a resurrection coming. Dom. All right, well, what does this teach us about Jesus? What do we learn from this story about the character of Jesus and who he is? I think it shows us he's a, he's a risk taker. Because mm. he could have, allowing this girl to die could have um, made him look bad mm -hmm. to uh, a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But he was okay with that, taking that risk. Yep. Jesus understands Jesus understands God's heart beyond just the law. Mm -hmm. Like the whole, I'm not sure it was appropriate for him to, for her to touch him or even his garment. In particular, if she was unclean, Jesus doesn't say you broke the law; he heals her. So, yeah, however you want to tie that in. Yeah, yeah. I love how he goes in there. It's almost like he incites them against himself. I make you this a do and we like he didn't have to say that he could have just saved the day mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. he says that they like mocked him for it basically and that's one of those occasions where it's hard to believe people would do that to him right but he knew what he was doing and I can't imagine how what the transition must have looked like to bring the daughter out alive yeah yeah yeah, sometimes it can it can be hard, you know, because we we probably stepping into that we wouldn't want to look foolish, right, and be mocked. And Jesus, he he has no time or care for for anything like that. He's taking the time to teach his disciples. Mm -hmm. he takes everybody out of the room except the child, mother, father, but also his companions come yep. here and watch. I'll show you. He's he's creating a, a learning a teaching moment out of it. 
Absolutely. See that? And that's good. And this, this ties in with this whole concept of thinking about what being a disciple and what discipleship is. is it's follow me as I follow Christ, right? It's, we went, we used that uh, example we were talking the other day, you know, someone who's starting with a brand new apprentice and as a carpenter or whatever field of construction it is, you know, you're going to give them some small tasks, you're going to take them along, you're going to show them this is, this is what you are to do. And Jesus is doing that exactly. And that's what he calls us to do. What does this teach us about man? What do we learn from this story about mankind? Man is needy without a savior. Mm-hmm. Man is needy without a savior. Good. Faithless. Can you expand on that? Well, just the way that they left Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there's with within a lot of these stories where we see people of with great faith, uh, those are usually very few and far between. The multitudes and the crowds are usually the ones that are like, what you know, mocking and 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 despising. And then there's usually a, a one or two here that are that are actually have that deep rooted faith that they believe Jesus will be be able to address their issue. Yeah, because like the. Uh the leader, uh, Jairus, was told his daughter was dead. Mm-hmm. And Jesus just said, do not be afraid, only believe. So it was, yeah, I think he was like trying to yeah, make an example for us about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder if Jairus was, you know, I mean, maybe, there, maybe there's a little bit more in the dialogue, but believe what? Like, you know, okay, yes, I, I, I'll try not to be afraid in this moment. And what exactly do you want me to believe? Like, you know, because this reality of of the resurrection, you know, this is where, you know, this gets into probably a little bit off, off subject, but like, you know, some believe in the resurrection, some don't. And what is the reality of this? And, and Jesus is, you know, this is a, a real moment. He's showing them, I am the resurrection and the life. And, uh, and so I wonder, you know, if Jairus was like, Believe what? Like maybe believe that she's going to heaven because she's dead. Yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. Believe that 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 God has her. I like, wasn't thinking that she's going to be alive again. Right. Yeah. Or maybe he was, and that's why she came alive again. Mm-hmm. We're quick to give up if we can't see the outcome. We can't see the other side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to give you all uh, a few moments. Um, because of time, we can't go around the room and, and have everybody give some application. But I want to give you just a few minutes. Maybe I'll give you three minutes here um, to think about application. What application or change can you make to your life today? Think about something, something you need to, to meditate or pray about and um, apply to your life as a result of this story. All right, and then the, the last question, um, if you can think about somebody right now, um, or as the class continues on, who can you tell this story to? Is there a friend, a family member, a believer, a non-believer, somebody that you can tell this story to? All right, so we're going <clears> to <throat> transition out of, the, out of that, um, and once again, I mean, doing... A discovery Bible study, doing something simple as, as you know, picking a, um, a story or a passage of scripture, finding a group of people, 
reading through that passage and then asking a few simple questions like that really can be a very powerful tool. It's a very simple thing. Like it doesn't, it, it's very low overhead. <laughs> All you need is some, some chairs. You could even do it standing. You don't even need chairs. Um, <laughs> literally, if you have a Bible and, and a handful of people, um, you can do that. And, and many times people, especially even people who may not, at least at that moment, be interested in Christianity. Everybody loves to hear a story. Um, and so hopefully you guys can think about and find opportunities. And that's we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, as the class goes on. But we're going to transition from that into uh, moving into the Great Commission. Jesus commissions the believers to be his witnesses. So Matthew chapter 28 is the famous Great Commission. And this is after Jesus, after his death, burial, and his resurrection. Um, he is getting ready to uh, ascend to the Father. But he tells his disciples, he says, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the, of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now Luke's account of this, um, that's, so that's reference as Matthew 28, 18 through 19. Um, actually, I think it's 18 through 20. I need to add a number. Um, and then the reference for Luke is Luke 24. It says, Then Jesus said to them, thus, is, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead in the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem, until you are endowed with power from on high. So Jesus is saying, it's up to you guys. He's passing the baton. He's, you know, he's, he has completed what he came for. Luke 4.43, Jesus says, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also for this purpose I have been sent. He's fulfilled that peace. He's gone into death. He's, he's broken those chains. He's resurrected. And now he's saying, okay, the ball's in your court. And he sent, he's sending them out and he's saying, wait, and when the time's right, go. Right? So I want to do a quick survey through the book of Acts to just get an overview of what it is that they're going out and saying, just to kind of give us some sound. This is, this is, this is not going to be an in-depth um, Look, we're going to go quickly, so this is kind of soundbite um, glimpses of things that happen through the book of Acts. I actually meant to print this up and have different people read these passages, so maybe I'll just assign them right now. Nate, if you could do um, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, and then uh, Laban, if you'd be willing to do uh, Acts 2, 29 through 36, and then we'll, let's jump over here and give somebody, um, John, if you could do Acts 8. Verse 12, um, let's see, next row, Lily, if you could do Acts 14, 21 through 22. Uh, the next row, let's do, if you'd be willing to do uh, Acts 17, 5 through 7. 
Uh, Joshua, if you could do Acts 19, verse 8. Dom, can you do Acts 20, 24 through 25? And then, Elijah, would you, would you do 20, Acts 28, verses 23 and verse 31? What are we supposed to do with it? Just once you get your okay. passage, does everybody who's going to read, everybody know which passage they have? Okay, and then uh, if you could just read it out loud. Acts 1, verse 3. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Acts 2, 29-36, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, and that his soul was not left in Hades, neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of whom we all are witnesses. Therefore, being raised up by the right hand of God, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which ye now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made the same Jesus, whom he hath crucified, both Lord and Christ. Thank you. Okay, hold on before we continue on. So just in those, in those two passages there, um, the first one is Jesus himself, uh, a period um, of 40 days appearing to them and speaking about the things that pertain to what? The kingdom of God. To the kingdom of God. So we have Jesus' ministry before his death, burial, and resurrection. And what does it seem like he's going around talking a lot about? The kingdom of God, right? I mean, like it's, it's the theme of the things that he's talking about and doing. And now he's raised from, uh, from the grave and he's seeing his disciples and still talking to them about things that pertain to the kingdom of God. And then we get the first proclamation of the gospel, which we're going to go into more tomorrow. Um, but we get the first proclamation, which is the passage uh, you guys did in your inductive st study this morning. Um, and we, it's sometimes terms and words can become white noise to us. Um, I'm going to say it, it might seem laughable, but Christ is not Jesus's second name. Uh, it's a title. And, and I know that may seem like, well, obviously, but a lot of people throughout the world don't realize that Christ is actually a title um, because they're always said together and we don't, you know, it's not, it's a, it's not a term that is used in any sort of everyday context except for out of a, a Christian religious context. And so people just kind of come to this assumption. We could spend a whole lesson unpacking the term of Christ, but just, just know that it's, it's a term that it's, it's the Messiah. It's, it's the anointed one. And I think a, a good full definition um, to give us, or a good working definition, I should say, is it means God's anointed king. Um, I ask my children sometimes when we're doing family devotions, I'll, I'll say, uh, what does Messiah mean? They'll say, God's anointed king. What does Christ mean? 
God's anointed king. And because I, I, we, we need to sometimes update those those terms so that they don't become lost on us. And so this proclamation right there at the end said that he's both Lord and God's anointed king. Um, and he talks about him ascending up to be at the right hand of the father, taking that position of the throne. Okay, so continue on. Acts chapter 8. 8, 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Very good. Very good. Let me just pause on that one. Like that, that one is is a powerful one. I mean, like they're they're literally putting Jesus against Caesar. Like they're saying these are acting contrary to the decrees. Like a decree is is it's it's one of the most in Uganda. Um, they they still have kingdoms, and so they understand this concept of like kingship and and, and a decree and like. You know, when a, when a decree is issued, it's not a suggestion. It's not like, oh, it's just a law, like we can kind of under the radar. Like, I mean, it's, it's life or death if you obey or disobey these things. And so it's saying these are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king. This is the central piece of their proclamation that they're making. Okay, continue on. Um, we're on Acts 19 now. Thank you. Now, there's a lot more passages we could pull from. We just kind of did a, a really brief survey of, of the book, book of Acts. And I encourage you, go read the entire book of Acts and, and be able to come to draw your, your own thoughts and conclusions from, from things. But if we, if we do this survey, does there seem to be a central theme to their, what they're going around talking about? I think it's the kingdom of God. That's a really good guess. <laughs> I think it is. You know, several times it says they go about talking about the kingdom of God in, in the name of Jesus, persuading them both from the law of Moses and the prophets about Jesus and the kingdom, right? 
Um, so, so if it's central to, to the message that they're communicating, the proclamations that they're making, if it's central to their gospel, it should be central in our gospel, right? If, if Jesus is not the central thing in the gospel and his kingdom, when we proclaim um, the good news of, of his kingdom, um, then it's, it's a deficient gospel. There's, there, and, and let me give you a real life um, application about, about this. 1994, Rwanda. <clears throat> Rwanda is just south of, of Uganda. It's one of the bordering countries, one of the several bordering countries of, of Uganda. 1994, um, you have a 96% professing Christian nation. And in 1994, you have two main tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsis, who one week are sitting together in their respective churches and places of worship, presumably sharing communion together, fellowshipping, singing, prayers. They've all gone to prayers. And the next week are killing each other based upon what tribe you are. Now, they heard that Jesus was their Savior. They, they, they accepted Jesus as their personal Savior. They heard the gospel of Jesus and that he wants them to go to heaven when they die, they, he, that Jesus wants to do something with their life. But it was Jesus absent the kingdom. And we're going to dive into this a whole lot more tomorrow when we actually talk about fleshing out the gospel of the kingdom and making sure that we're not preaching a message that's deficient. When we preach Jesus without his kingdom and his laws and, and all that that entails, we have a, a deficient gospel. And, okay, I'll, let me jump into this now. There, there is, going back to this, this concept of, um, of kingdom and and speaking about in Uganda, they understand kingdoms, and so it, it works. It's a, it's a bridge within the culture where we can communicate the gospel message in a way that's relevant and understandable. And <clears throat> the way to, to help understand that is for them, they have what's called a kabaka. And a kabaka is the Luganda word for king. And if, back in the old days when the, when the kingdoms, the various kingdoms that existed, the tribal kingdoms, um, they would have various wars, tribe to tribe, and different things like that. And if you were taken captive, um, let's say that we have someone from tribe A who's taken captive into tribe B. Now, the person who, who uh, captures you and brings you before the king and his council um, is the, the, the ability for that king to be the savior to either pardon or condemn that person, right? To either have them put to death, put in prison, or potentially pardon them if, if they're willing to, to accept the terms. Um, the only person who holds that ability and that power to do that is the king himself. So his ability to even be a savior or a partner or merciful is bound up and wrapped up in his position and title as a king, right? Does that make sense? And so that's the problem. If we only focus and preach about Jesus being the savior, but we completely neglect and miss his kingship, well, he can't be the savior if he's not the king. His ability to be the savior, which he is, is totally bound and interconnected and locked in with his position and title as 
we saw in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Well, if, if he didn't have that authority as a king, he couldn't be the one who also offers mercy and pardon and forgiveness and those things that he does offer. So we will, like I said, tomorrow we're going to, uh, I'm hoping we can spend some time actually unpacking that a whole lot more um, and trying to bring some definition to those things. I'm a de definition person. I like to define our terms. And I think it's important as we think about the concept of evangelism and discipleship and, and what that encompasses in making disciples that we define our terminology. Um, I think I mentioned it may have been yesterday that depending on what your background or upbringing is or even, even out here, if we were to survey a handful of people that, that go to church using the word gospel or evangelism or disciple or discipleship or, you know, name some sort of word that we get from, our, our, um, from the New Testament. And the way that that's defined can be very different depending on who we're talking to. And so it's important that we define these terms. Now, we don't want to just define things in the way that's most comfortable or that fits what we want it to. Uh, we need to try to allow, uh, and not need, we, we must allow scripture to help inform and define these terms that we're using. One, one thing I will mention too, as we think about discipleship and disciple making is, I think if, if we're honest, and I, and I know this is my experience too, one of the, the hardest parts or one of the learning curves of getting out, going, and doing it is that we haven't really seen it, right? We're, we, don't, we may not come, some, maybe some of you do, I don't know your various backgrounds and, and, and things like that, but if you're like me, it's, you, you, you read these things and it's like, okay, I get it and I know we're supposed to, but I haven't had it modeled for me, so I don't really... I don't really get it. It's like a carpenter giving somebody, here's the blueprints, go ahead and build the house. And you're like, yeah, that all makes sense. And I see the lines like, like, and here's a two by four, but like, you know, their ability to actually build the house if they've never done it before is highly limited, right? Um, but once you've, once you've had somebody walk alongside of you and say, hey, you know, when you look at the blueprints, this, this symbol indicates this. And this here means that you go this long or whatever the case may be. And that's, that's what discipleship is. It's bringing somebody along. And so that's the challenge, I think, for most of us is we, we may or may not have been in a position where we have been discipled. And I would encourage each and every one of you, if you haven't been or if you're not being discipled, and not, not just am I going to, to, to church and hearing good teaching and, you know, I, I'm a part of a men's accountability group. Like, no, is there, is there actually... At least, at least one. Is there someone that's actually discipling you? And if not, find someone. Find someone to walk alongside of you. Somebody who's further along the journey. That with any given uh, discipline or something that, that people want to accomplish, usually you're going to seek out someone that's further along or that's disciplined in a given area, um, whether that be construction or something else, and you're going you're gonna to want to apprentice underneath them so that you can get your skills up and they can help bring you along. And that's, that's we need to be seeking that out as believers. Okay. <clears throat> so gospel. Gospel is not synonymous with salvation. Some of these things might go without saying, but... 
sometimes we use these terms so interchangeably um, and, you know, like, have they responded to the gospel call? Um, you know, and it's, and we, they kind of, they're very, very closely related. So, you know, I mean, all, a lot of these terms that we're talking about, they are interconnected. We, we, they need, each one depends on the other and there's a, they, they help define one another. But, but we also have to remember that they are distinct. You know, that, that the gospel is not synonymous with <clears throat> salvation. Gospel simply means good news. Glad tidings, good tidings. Um, it's, it's a word, even in the Old Testament, that you will see um, someone will bring the gospel. It's not necessarily always used in the context of Jesus came and died and bringing his kingdom. Obviously, that is the good news when we actually talk about what is good news. Um, but it, it, it doesn't have to be a highly religious word that, it, that it's become. We just need to simplify some of these terms down without taking away their significance. Salvation is an outcome that flows from the gospel. So that's where I'm saying gospel is not synonymous with salvation, neither is salvation synonymous with gospel, but rather salvation is an outcome that flows from that good news. That as Jesus' disciples, as we saw in the book of Acts, are going out and persuading people about the name of Jesus and things that pertain to the kingdom of God. It talks about that many were baptized, many were many responded and uh, submitted to uh, what was being preached. And so we see that salvation is a result. It is an outcome of the good news of the kingdom of God. If we want to give a good simplified definition, this is this, you, you can come up with your own. I prefer thinking about salvation as being salvaged to be human, that, that Jesus comes as the new human, human, the true humanity, shows us that what humanity was meant to do and be, restores that and calls us or invites us into that. And that's now the idea. That's, that's what we're, we're striving towards in Christ. And so we are salvaged, you know, that whole concept of, of a vehicle being restored to what it was created to be. It's being salvaged to be what it originally was created to be, to fulfill its purpose. Evangelism is not synonymous with discipleship. Evangelism is not synonymous with discipleship, neither is discipleship synonymous with evangelism. Now, once again, these two things are still very closely connected, um, but they are two distinguishable things. The goal of, of evangelism is not to get someone to come to church. So if we're going to go out and we're going to do some sort of evangelism, <clears throat> the goal is not to get them to, to come to church. Uh, in, in Uganda, in the church there, sorry, I'm going to reference that a lot because for the last several, you know, many years, that, that's where most of my um, experience has been, in, 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 at least in the near, near term. And um, one of the, this is something that we actually stress quite a bit there, and it's, and it's for good reason, because we want people to understand that the goal of evangelism is not to get somebody to come to church, because the goal of evangelism is to make disciples. That's the goal of evangelism. Now, the church plays a part in that, and obviously coming and being part of a community and showing up and 
being able to be recipients of, of the blessing of what a church community does is, is absolutely involved in that. But when we reduce evangelism down to, well, hey, let me just ask my neighbor if he wants to come to church. And, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it's just, I think it's a, it's a misplaced goal. It's, it's not actually, we want to set, <laughs> we can set the bar low and say, okay, let me just get them to come to church, but we, let's not set the bar low. Jesus says, go and make disciples. So let's reorient that goal and say, uh, the goal of evangelism is to go out and make disciples. And I think what happens a lot of times is people think, okay, well, I don't, I don't know what all to say, how to say it, when to say it. Um, there's people in the church that are so much better at doing that than I am. So let me just, if I could just get them in the door, if I can get them in the seat, then somebody else will take it over from there and we'll feel like, hey, mission accomplished. I've done good. And, and that, I'm, it's, it's a step, right? It's a step. But what happens a lot of times is they come once, twice, maybe three times, and then they, they stop coming. There's not someone who's, who's truly taking ownership, if you will, or investing and saying, hey, I'm going to build a relationship with this person. Because it, our mindset shouldn't be, if I can get them in the church building, then the church or someone else will disciple them. No, Jesus has called me to make them a disciple. And I don't do that absent myself. I need the church body. We need the Holy Spirit. We need prayer. But Jesus told me to make the disciple, and I need to, to take that charge on. So evangelism is to proclaim the good news. So we can see all of these things are reliant on one another, but they are distinguishable terms. So evangelism is to pr proclaim the good news. <clears throat> and the way in which we go about proclaiming that good news, there's a whole variety of ways in which we can go about trying to, to engage in activities that give us opportunity to build relationship, engage with people, and begin to share um, the story of Jesus with them. All right, so let's talk about some principles for evangelism or some principles for disciple-making. So think about when you think evangelism, think disciple-making. So one of the first principles... <clears throat> It's not revolutionary, it's go, or as you go. As you go, make disciples of all nations. Now, for the early church in the book of Acts, <clears throat> sometimes the going was intentional. Sometimes, actually a good number of times, it was a forced going. It was persecution arose and and all of a sudden, they're scattered, and they find themselves, and they're like, okay, well, here's the situation we find ourselves. Let's start talking about Jesus and his kingdom with people. And then all of a sudden, a church <laughs> pops up. And that's, if we, that's another subject. I won't get into that. Okay, so go. As you go, this, this is, you know, in day-to-day -day opportunities that, that arise. Um, there's a way in which we can begin to create spaces and places that are intended for evangelism, disciple making, and, and Bible studies, and, and those, are, those are wonderful things, um, and, and I think things that we should involve ourselves in. But a lot of times, there's stuff, there's opportunity right in front of us. 
and sometimes we we miss that. Um, you know what? That's I, that's why I started with the story that I did this morning, right? Jesus was already on a mission, but as he was going, what happened? There was a woman who was in need, and Jesus doesn't just go, "Hey, yeah, that's great. I've got like." Um, actually, you know, I've got another appointment. I'm going to heal some guy's daughter. If you could just wait here, um, you know, Peter, he'll take your name and your number. Um, I'll be back. Right? Like, that's not, <laughs> that's not how he, that's not how he operates. He, he, he's on his way, but, but wait a second. There's an opportunity right here. Hold on a sec. Sorry, JRs. Hello, daughter. You know, like Jesus sees people. And I think that's, that, it's hard. I, I'm, I have a challenge with this. You know, I get busy and I'm like, I've got places to go, people to see, things to do. And, and I'm guilty constantly of missing opportunities that are, that are in front of me. But they're still there. Those opportunities are there. We don't always have to look very far to find them. Uh, and these are in no particular order. I'm just kind of, I kind of just threw them on the slide here. Um, but prayer. Asking the Holy Spirit to go before you. So obviously this is probably a little bit more intentional, like maybe you are going to uh, meet up with somebody at a coffee shop and have a Bible study, or maybe you, you know, you know what, I'm going to go to that coworker or that schoolmate or that, that uh, uh, neighbor. And so prayer needs to be a big piece of what we're doing. Jesus says to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers, but we also should be praying that, the, the soil of their heart can be at a place where it can receive the seed of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom. Um, if we go to, I know Matthew touched on uh, the, the parable of the, the soils, right? There's four different soils. And I think it's important for us to, to understand that, well, this is my, my thought. <laughs> so um, take it or leave it. I Jesus gives us an indication that one out of four soils are good, right? One, Satan snatches it. The other one is choked out. Another one is on stony ground and just kind of springs up but then dies. And then it's the last one that yields. It's good soil, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold, right? Well, I think that it's our job as disciple makers, as witnesses of Jesus, to help cultivate the soil. Like, so if somebody is soil number one, how can we, one, let's be praying for the Holy Spirit to go before us and to show up, but how do we get them to go from soil one to soil two and soil two to soil three and soil three to soil four? So that person has the cares of this life. They have the things that are, that are, that are going to choke out this word. But if I want to plant in the Shamba, if I want to go out and plant a farm, I can't just you know, stand back and throw seed, right? I actually have to get some tools and go out with a djembe or some sort of, uh, with a hoe or some sort of uh, tool and actually dig up the ground, right? And turn the soil and make it ready before I can plant. And then after I've planted, then I can come back and see what the harvest is going to be, right? And so that's the, that's the difficult part of evangelism. And that's where a lot of people end up not, they end up getting discouraged. Because we, we kind of just in our mind like, okay, everybody's going to be soil number four. Oh, I told them about Jesus and nobody responded. 
And, and that's good. It's, it's, it's not a loss. What is it? It's a win, right? But, but we, need to also, we, we need to also think about and go, okay, how, how, do I, how do I actually communicate to this person? What is it in their life that's causing them to not have ears to hear and eyes to see? And sometimes there's not going to be much that you can do. But that's where we need prayer. We need the Holy Spirit. Go before us, Lord. Prepare the soil of their heart. Help reveal to me how I can actually minister to them today and help them to be able to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Okay, one other principle of evangelism is two by two. It's a biblical model. It's the Jesus model. Jesus sent them out two by two into the villages, telling them to heal the sick, uh, to preach the kingdom of God, to pray for peace when it comes, or when you enter into a house, to pray for peace, to fall upon that house. So it's a very biblical concept. We won't go into it because of time, but there's a lot of great reasons why two by two evangelism, and it doesn't have, you don't have to limit it only to two. You do three or four of you, but um, this concept of, of having multiples um, gives you that much more ability to be effective. Especially if you, if you can find somebody that maybe is, is complementary to your giftings. You know, other people are strong in this and maybe you're weak in it, but they're stronger and vice versa. You're strong in certain areas and they may be weak, but together the two begin to make a whole. A husband and wife uh, pair is a, is a great <laughs> tool for, I mean, you already got two by two. Um, then if you got little children, then you got your, you know, your, you've got many. But, <clears throat> but it's, it's, a, uh, it's a great way to feel like you have somebody else beside you uh, as you're doing this or as you confront something that maybe it's awkward, maybe it's uncomfortable, you don't have answers for and somebody else might be like, hey, you know what, I've actually gone through that and then they can speak to the situation. So there's a lot of great value and I think a lot of great wisdom to that model. Ask for God's peace to be upon the house or the place that you're at. We've done a lot of that um, when we lived in, in, in Africa, uh, entering into somebody's home and just asking for God's peace to rest upon this place, uh, to be here in the midst. Um, and, I, and I think that's a, an important concept is that we need to make sure that we're always inviting Christ, inviting the Holy Spirit, inviting God to be present in the things that we're taking part in. It's our job to be faithful. It's our job to be witnesses, to be messengers. Um, but as Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we need to recognize that and to, to continue to ask for his peace and his presence to be there. Proclaim the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. Okay, if we were just to sum it up, we looked at those different examples. Like, okay, how can I be faithful and effective in proclaiming the good news of Jesus and his kingdom? It doesn't mean that you always have to have the right answers. And it's okay if they ask questions, if somebody asks you questions and you don't have the answers, it's okay to say, I'll have to get back to you on that. That's a good question. I don't know that I know how to answer it at this moment. Let me pray about it. Let me think. Let me study. And maybe I can come back to you with an answer. Whatever that question may be, it's okay to not have the answers. If you're like me, I, I, I don't like question and answer times because <laughs> then you're like you're up here and like everybody's out there and you're just like, OK, what are they going to ask? And then when they ask the question, you just you feel like you have to come up with something. And I do it all the time on the spot. And sometimes I'm, I, I, I'm like, I, I don't know that I answered it 
very well. And, and, and I think it's just because of nerves. Like you don't want to be at a place where you're just like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, but it's okay to, to, to recognize we don't have all the answers and we're not meant to have all the answers. We, we have to go to the source of the one who does have those answers. And sometimes we need to just be willing to say, I don't know. Let me get back to you on that. All right. Uh, the next principle, build a relationship. For me, in my experience, the most effective ways that people have become disciples is in the context of a relationship. Now, it doesn't, doesn't always have to be. There might just be that one time where you're passing by somebody and there's an interaction and maybe you speak, you end up sowing some seed and you don't even get to see the harvest of what happens in that person's life. You may have just spoken, seen somebody out on a train somewhere or passing by and, and spoke some sort of truth as you were passing them and somebody else comes along and they water it and God gives the increase and that person becomes effective. We don't know. We're, we're just supposed to, supposed to proclaim. But, if, but as far as uh, engaging in the, the activity of making disciples, the, one of the most effective ways is in the context of a relationship. So taking the time to invest in people. See people, like actually see people, not just... I can physically see you, but actually seeing people and invest in their lives. Find out what they're interested in. Get to know them. Talk to them. Build that relationship and allow that to be an opportunity for, for ministry. <clears throat> the next one is relevance. Now, don't take it into a, a, a place that some people take it, but relevance in the context of being able to speak to the things that are going on in their life. So not relevance in the sense of be the world to win the world. <laughs> you, we don't have to be the world to win the world. Um, but we do have to be relevant to the situation. I mean, if somebody's in the midst of a crisis, we need to stop and minister to that crisis. And we can speak truth into that. And we can bring the story of Jesus into it. And there's but, but at times, we might, just like Jesus, need to stop and minister to the situation that's right in front of us. And so the more that we can think about, okay, how do I make this? If I'm, let's say I have, i trying to think of somebody's name who's not in here. Let's say we have um, Sam. There, there's no Sam's, right? Okay. Let's say we have, we have Sam here. And Sam is, you know, he's in the midst, like... His, his wife is very sick. His children aren't doing very well. He's lost his job. They're not sure what they're going to do. Um, you know, they may lose, lose the house. He's trying to figure out how to pay his bill, bills. And, and you know, your, your hope for him is that he would come to know Jesus as his Lord and his Savior. And he needs that. There's a lot of brokenness in his life. And that, that brokenness can only be healed through Jesus and his kingdom. And so there's, there is a deep need there. But in that moment, what's the only thing that Sam's thinking about? The situation that's in front of him, right? And sometimes we just need to stop and be able to minister. It says that they will know you are Christians. How? By our love. By our love, right? Maybe Sam just needs to see some humanity. Maybe Sam just needs to know that he is loved and that the reason you're loving him is because God loves him and, 
And as you're doing that, you're actually showing Jesus to him. And then it becomes relevant. As, as he looks at it through that lens, then all of a sudden, Jesus becomes a bit more real to him today because of what you're doing, because of what Christ has done for you. <clears throat> The next principle, follow up and follow through. It's good to continually be on the radar, if you will. You know, if you have some relationships or people that you've started talking to, follow up, follow through. If you told them you were going to do something, you should do it. Not just because... You told them you should do it, but be, especially because Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, right? So it's an opportunity for obedience, but, but we should make sure that we are showing that, that person that we're reliable, that we keep our word even if it hurts, right? Develop a genuine love and concern for people. This one's, this one's hard, if, if I'm being honest. I think I go through times in my life where I feel like I have a deep concern and, and, and care for people. And then I go through many times in life where I feel very cynical. And I, and, I'm, and I don't have that deep care and concern. And it's like, just another problem. Get over it. Like, we all have problems. Right? And that's, I, I struggle with that. I, I can tell you, it, when... when when you're constantly, when, when poverty and brokenness and, and uh, broken households and things are constantly in your face, you, you kind of become numb to them over time. And that's, that's a challenge I've faced, especially over the years, is becoming cynical and, and losing that genuine love and concern for people. But Jesus doesn't seem to lose it. He's, he, he doesn't lose it. Um, and so we need to be striving towards that and we need to be developing it but I think we not only develop it we have to realize it has to continually be cultivated um, I know we have a, a nurse in the audience I, I used to when I was on the fire department we also ran the um, the, the ALS uh, paramedic service and so we work closely with with the hospitals and so anyway we you deal with patients and you know when you when you first become a nurse or you first become a paramedic and you're out like you're you're excited like every call you're like oh here we go and you're you're excited and like you're you know you're getting there and the patient like oh what's wrong I know what to do and like you, you have care and concern and you're like hey I get to solve this person's problem I can tell you at three in the morning when it's shift after shift after shift you, you don't really have that same care and compassion as you did when you first get on the job right or if you're working as a nurse and it's your 12 13, 14, 20th patient that's come in with the same condition. It's just kind of like it, you know, okay, here we go. It's the mundane once again, and I'm doing it over and over. Like, it's very easy as for, for us to get into that kind of a rut, even in our spiritual life. But we need to recognize it. We need to confess it, and we need to be able to, to cultivate that love again. All right? Um, be where people are. <laughs> um, I don't know everybody's situation and circumstance. But if we're supposed to be fishers of men, fishers of people, 
we got to be where people are. I think that's kind of a kind of a given. Um, so if you're if you are in a situation or a place where you just don't have a lot of other human interaction, you're it's going to be hard to make disciples. Um, you got to be where people are, wherever that may be, whether that be work, school, lo- location. All right. <clears throat> the next is creating a fishing pond. So as I talked about earlier, we have our everyday opportunities, but we can we need to be creative in thinking about what are places that I can create. Um, maybe it's, you know, going to a local coffee shop at a certain time and a certain day, you know, you and, and, and a friend, let's say, um, who, who lives, who are two brothers that live in the same city or the same place? Uh, Jacob and I do. You and Jacob. Okay. So, so Jacob and John, maybe it's you all saying, Hey, we're going to show up at this coffee shop at, on this day at this time. And, you know, you're going to invite someone, he's going to invite someone, and you're always going to have a Bible study there. And, and you know, if somebody wants to, to come in and see, hey, man, like I've noticed for like the last three weeks, every single day at the same time, you guys are always here. What are you doing? You know, like people, regular people who are in that place are going to notice that and wonder, like, what are these guys doing here? And they're, they're going to come and approach you and ask. If not that, people that just regularly frequent that place, but even... The people who work there are going to be like, man, what do you like? Every day they're here and they've they've got some book they're studying. They must be serious about their studies. I'm curious what they're looking into and they the people working there. So I mean that those are low risk things that you can do, right? Um, in Uganda, we we have a few different fishing ponds. Um, one is a place called Antioch. We we have a, a Christian resource center that we opened. We named it Antioch specifically because we wanted to reinforce the vision that we want Kampala to be the Antioch of Africa, and uh, and so the name reinforces the vision. And what we do there, it's right across from the university, um, forty thousand plus student university. Um, we our housing where we live is also on the side where all the hostels of the the university students are so we have regular interaction and then Antioch is our face in the community if you will Um, and we teach Bible studies creation to new creation Um, we have a ministry out of there that's called his image ministries and it is um, an anti-abortion ministry we do education and awareness so we have a team of of, uh, people both uh, volunteers and and staff that go on to the university campus every Saturday and they do surveys they walk around and survey people and ask their opinion. Now it's interesting. Um, abortion is actually illegal in Uganda, but it still is done. Um, so just getting legislation passed and things like that isn't the solution. I mean, it, it definitely helps. It's a part of the a part of the equation, um, but it doesn't it doesn't stop there. People still will get them even through illegal means. And and the sad thing is, it actually it, it's more. There's the potential for a lot more to go wrong in that situation. But anyway, <clears throat> so we, we go on to the campus and we engage with people and we, we give them a place to invite. So rather than just like engaging and somebody's interested in asking questions about things, uh, whether that be uh, have to do with, you know, the, the unplanned pregnancies and things like that, or if they're just asking, well, why are you guys out here? What are, you know, and they begin to ask those questions rather than saying, hey, come to church on Sunday, we have a place to invite them to. Um, so that for those that maybe are, are a little bit more timid and not sure how to engage in conversation, they have that little, that little hook of, oh, hey, why don't you come to this? And um, that's an event that happens every Saturday night. 
during COVID, it became challenging because of uh, COVID restrictions and things like that. But it happens every Saturday night, and it's called Let's Talk About Life. And it's just a place where university students, they don't have to be university students, but that's our most predominant, um, prominent uh, demographic that we're dealing with. But it's just a place where they can come. There's going to be uh, someone who's going to lead a guided discussion. Uh, it may have to do with, uh, you know, life and abortion. It may be a Bible study. It may be a topic on abstinence and purity, um, you know, because we don't just want to deal with the symptom, you know, unplanned pregnancies. We want to deal with some of the root causes, like this is caused because of being promiscuous and not having a, you know, holding on to values and standards of waiting until you're married. And so we, we try to get to that. And we, and the reason we named it Let's Talk About Life is they can come with whatever questions they have, whatever life throws at them that they're just like, hey, th we want to create a safe place where this is okay to ask whatever question it is that you have. Because young people, especially university students, they have some questions about life. They, you know, that maybe their parents didn't prepare them for the, for what's in the world and they're just like what in the world is this you know and creating a, a space where the conversations can happen um so that's um we've actually had uh, quite a quite a bit of good engagement from something like that i'm throwing out ideas for you guys things that that we've done that we have found to be effective <clears throat> but then that like i said that creates that safe place where okay well, i may not invite them to church but let me invite them to here to this and that's a very you know uh non-confrontational place where we can kind of just begin to get to know each other ask questions start building a relationship and usually what happens they come back next week and usually what happens they come with a friend <laughs> and they're like this is really neat and they and it just it, it starts to build its own little momentum and and it's kind of like wow we don't even have to like necessarily go out to the fishing pond it's like the fisher it's like jumping fish um <laughs> and it becomes a great place now now the challenge is though um, and this is something that we have faced. It's not all um, rose-colored glasses. The challenge is you got to make sure that the people are making the most of the opportunity and saying, hey, we need to make sure we're intentional. You know, are we being strategic and intentional uh, and relational to, uh, to make the most of this opportunity that's, that's in front of us? Um, so some other things that the church there in Uganda does, we have a, a welding school, um, and this is... Um, something that has been uh, we've actually had two people now that have um, come into the church as a result of that were non-believers that came into the church as a result of going through the welding institute and um, now obviously the welding institute they're not you know typically you're not going in there thinking oh this is going to be a great biblical education um, <laughs> but every single day we have somebody from our Antioch Christian Resource Center one of the the facilitators that has been um, uh, taught and trained and discipled um, that goes there and literally tells Bible stories, um, goes through a lesson, and, and sometimes it, it changes uh, depending on, uh, we've had a few different facilitators and each of them has a different approach, but literally it's like a 30 to 45 minute little lesson at the beginning of every single morning and it creates, it generates curiosity and someone's like, hmm, I want to know more about that. And then when they ask, how do I learn more? We say, hey, well, at our resource center, we have Bible studies at this time, this time, and this time. You're welcome to come. And, and it just kind of develops like that as the relationship builds. So 
there's all kinds of things that you can, oh wow, I'm at my time and I still have quite a bit to go through. Um, time, I don't, know, I don't know if it feels like it's going long for you, but I feel like I stand up here and then it's like, and the clock just goes. Well, let's just do it next week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so anyway, let me, let me keep going. Um, so there's plenty of opportunities. So I would say, you know, some people aren't at the place where they, they maybe have some entrepreneurial skills or, or don't feel like, man, trying to create a fishing pond just seems really difficult and I don't know that I'm there yet. A lot of times there's already tremendous opportunities in, in various places and various cities to volunteer at a soup kitchen, to serve, find a place. There's a lot of times uh, homeless shelters are a great place to, to you're going to meet some interesting people if you, if you do some work there. Um, but, but take the time and actually like learn their stories, like listen to their stories. Cause a lot of times it's, it's a sad and tragic story to find out why people are in that situation. Um, and so, uh, you know, look around and see what's, what's already going on. It may be some other church that we don't, that you don't fully doctrinally line up with Well, you're, you know, you're not going there to, to necessarily, um, sign up and affirm everything that they, that they believe. Um, but you can see it as an opportunity to, to meet people, to minister to people, and to begin to find someone to disciple and help to, to bring Jesus into their broken situation. Um, next thing, which I already mentioned, listen to their story. We have to listen to their story. <clears throat> Assess the bridges and barriers. So let me just briefly touch on, on bridges and barriers. What what does a bridge help us do? To cross over, right? To connect to two places that we otherwise would have very challenging means to get to if if there wasn't a bridge, right? So a bridge is something that helps to connect. So we need to think about you know where wherever we're whatever we're doing, whether that's at the fishing pond or or we're reaching out to somebody. What are those bridges that we, what are the common things that we either know or we agree on or something that can really connect us, right? So for example, um, the whole concept of, in Uganda of having a kabaka, having a king and, and kingdom, like that's a huge bridge. It's like, oh, this is just right for, for the gospel kingdom. Like this understanding what it means when, when, when a decree is issued, understanding that Jesus is the king and he issues these decrees that, that we are supposed to obey, like it just, it fits beautifully within something that is already in their cultural understanding. So that's a bridge. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, so I won't, I, I could give a few more examples, but if we're getting it because of time, we'll go with it. Uh, barriers, what do you think barriers, barriers are? Barriers are things that, that are like walls that, that hinder the ability. It's a lack of a bridge, right? And so within culture, within societies, within people that we're ministering to, there's going to be barriers in front of us. Um, and we need, sometimes we need to, it takes a little bit to, to maybe figure out what it is, but we need to assess what are those walls or those barriers. Uh, and maybe it's an addiction. When you're dealing with somebody who, who does have, whether that be uh, alcohol or drug, um, pornography, or whatever, whatever it is, that's a barrier. And we have to, to, to be praying and thinking about, okay, how do we overcome that barrier? All right. <clears throat> Try to, to understand a person's worldview. We have to recognize not everybody thinks the way that you think. It would it'd be much easier if they did. <laughs> 
but not everybody does. Would everybody be okay if I just go like for 15 more minutes? Yeah. No, I'm cool with that. All right. Well, I know, I know you always are, Nate. But <laughs> All right. Make sure Clay doesn't come around the corner or something. All right. Um, try to understand the other person's worldview. Okay. So, uh, you know what? I am going to... All right. Okay. All right. Now, now don't don't take them off. Okay. Nobody tell him what color it is. What color is this? Blue. Okay. What do you guys think? Is that blue? Not so much. Here, come, come this side and see. Make sure you don't take the glasses off. Bluish purplish. Okay, bluish purplish. Let's go with purplish. That's great. All right, so um, bluish purplish. Okay, keep on. No, you can sit, but keep keep the glasses on. Okay, um, bluish purple. Is he is how, how? What do you think? Is he accurate? No. No, not even not even close. Right. So, so what's the problem? Okay, now what should we do? Should we try to, to come out with all the arguments to tell him why this is not purple and why he's wrong? Is that, gonna, is that gonna, going to convince him? No, he's just still going to see purple. He's still just going to see purple. But what if I have like the best arguments in the world and I get all of the answers and I even get down to the, to the science and everything that proves it? Are you still going to be convinced that it's not purple? Still purple. Okay. Well, John, what color would you say this is? I think it's white. White. Okay. What else? Grayish. Grayish. Yeah. It's kind of like a like a grayish. It's a, some form of an off white, grayish. But it's definitely we can all agree it's not purple, right? It's not purplish blue. So what what do we need? What needs to happen for for Laban here to be able to see things the way you see them? You can remove the lenses now. He's going to have to take off the lenses, right? So we need to, to recognize that we all have a different worldview. Not all of us, but a lot of people have a different worldview than you have. And we can treat the symptoms, and we can come up with the best arguments. And those things are, are, are helpful. Those things are necessary. There's a time and a place for that. But we have to recognize most people don't need all the arguments and the science and everything else to, to prove what he's looking at. We have to recognize he's not going to get it because he's, he's looking through the world in this lens. And until that gets removed, we're not going to be able to convince him of much, right? So let me, uh, let's see here. circle's too big to make it work, but
Okay. So <clears throat> my my circles aren't the best there, but these are, are obviously concentric circles here. And so at, at the core is a person's story. Okay. It's their story. You you can't change it. It's it's it is who. Who, who they are, it's their experiences, it's where they were born, it's, it's all of those things that make up who they are. And what's around that is their worldview, okay? So, that, so the worldview is getting to the core. And this is ultimately their worldview um, is what Hebrews actions and oops, culture, okay? So their worldview is what affects their behavior, actions, and the culture around them. Okay, that's the lens. That's Laban looking at it and saying it's bluish purple, right? It's going to inform. So he's going, if he sees everything as, as bluish purple, he's going to act in that way and, and respond in those things. All right, so then outside of that is basically their, their beliefs and their ideas that they have formed through their experiences based upon their story. And... This is what defines for them, at least, what is true or false. It doesn't mean that in reality or whatever individual's realities are, that it, it, it is true or false in that sense, but this is what they have built as true or false for them, okay? And then the values tell us what is good and what is bad, and then I think we understand, you know, behaviors, action, and culture and how those things um, are work themselves out. It reflects what is done. Sadly, what happens a lot of time when we're trying to be effective in evangelism and making disciples or even doing church planting and going into a foreign context, a good amount of time, most people land here and try to change this. We try to change behavior and actions. We try to bring in kind of a new culture, a new way of, of thinking about these things. And okay, well, as long as we can get them to, to act a certain way, look a certain way, put on this, this uh, clothing item or not wear that clothing item, then, then we're making some progress. We're getting somewhere. And so what, what happens is we come in and we, we maybe have a whole good set of behavioral teachings. And, and believe me, I'm, don't, don't get me wrong. Repentance, I, I gave the definition yesterday. A change of mind that produces a change of action, right? But what has to happen? <laughs> the change of mind. You know, sometimes we can get a change of action without changing a mind. And that doesn't usually work out. And that as time goes on, it reveals itself that, oh, there hasn't been... There's been no shift here. We've, we've cleaned it up a little bit, but at the core, it's still broken. So, so a lot of times we fall short here and we measure our success or our results when we see this happening. And we should see that happening, but, but most of the time we don't move in to these other things. We need to, to move our way into a person's value system and understand what that is. Move that into their beliefs and ideas about the world. But ultimately, the problem is these glasses that, that Laban was wearing are all the way down here. So no matter how many of us gave him the right answer, we could, he could still be wearing these glasses and telling him, look, hey, it's not bluish purple. I know you think it is, but it, 
hey, just for the sake of others, just tell them it's this color, okay? They'll stop bothering you if you just say the right things. Play the part. And, and a lot of people, because of pressure, because of, or whatever, they'll, they'll do it. He'll change his behavior. He'll walk around every day. He walks, he'll walk by the screen saying, yep, it's purplish blue. Yeah, it's, it's a shade of gray. Right? I mean, I think, I hope you guys are getting the, the illustration. At some point, illustrations break down. But, but I'm hoping you're understanding the, the necessity of getting to the core, getting to the heart of the issue. And that's exactly what Jesus does. That's Jesus' way that he makes disciples. That's the apostles' way that they make disciples. And I want to look at one story. I do have a quote here. Uh, I'm not exactly sure who the quote is from, so I'm just going to say quote. (laughs) Focusing on anything less than worldview divests the gospel of its genuine power and frustrates the work. If Jesus is not a part of a person's cause and effect concepts, he remains interesting but irrelevant. So let me give a little bit of context for that, for that statement. <clears throat> In South Sudan, uh, I mean, it's throughout a lot of East Africa, but I think South Sudan is probably one of the more... Um, you're more prevalent, you're going to see it more, more prevalent, where a good number, well, actually, what was it, 2011 or 2013, South Sudan um, split from North Sudan and became a Christian nation. Um, and so they're, they have a good majority of professing Christians, um, but it's also one of, well, ever since that happened, it's also been a place of mass civil war, and we had somewhere over 2.5 million South Sudanese refugees that fled into Uganda. <clears throat> but when you look at their Christianity, when, when they see Jesus, they, they like Jesus. They, they accept a lot of the, the premise of, of Christianity, and, and they're, they're happy to embrace and have him but he just becomes one of the other gods in the pantheon, really. Because their worldview is a very animistic worldview, you know, where we have to appease the ancestors, and there's these different spirits, and there's, there's, there's something behind everything. And, and there was a, um, a story that someone else shared with me, uh, a friend of mine who, who lives in northern Uganda. He's, he actually had to flee during the conflict. He had to flee. He was living in South Sudan. And he and his wife and family had to uh, rapidly flee their home and come down to northern Uganda for safety. And there was uh, a group of pastors that they were traveling with. And they stopped along the way when they kind of got out of the danger zone. They stopped along the way because it wasn't safe to travel on your own, so you had to go in these caravans. And this pastor proceeded to get out of the car. I mean, every, a lot of people profess to be pastors. Um, it's to have that title means something uh, to a lot of them. And so he gets out and he wants to thank God for their safety and that they're out of the danger zone. And so he proceeds to uh, perform a sacrifice. And he, he performs the sacrifice and begins spilling the blood on the ground and says, ah, the ground was thirsting for blood. But yet, Jesus... Jesus is someone he hangs on to. What, what's the problem? 
his worldview never changed. He's, he's got a lot of the good behaviors. Oh, yeah, we need to thank God. We're out of the danger zone. He can say a lot of the right things, right? But at the core, his worldview has never changed. And so we need to... It, it's, not, it's not an easy feat. It's something that we, we have to, to work towards to get to that core worldview. All right, let's close. We're right at 15 minutes. This is my final passage. We're getting there. And I think this is a helpful... Yeah, turn to John chapter 4. If you want to, I, I don't have time to go into it. Acts chapter 17, that was the passage. We read, we read verse 5 and 6 earlier where it says, um, these have come here to have turned the world upside down. Um, they're in Jason's house. Um, they're teaching contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king. I would Actually, this is your homework. Go and read that whole chapter, chapter 17. Okay, Start from the top, work all the way down. Um, there are different stories that are happening in that chapter, but especially the last half of chapter 17, where Paul is, finds himself at the Areopagus, um, and he's, he's there confronted with philosophers and, and deep thinkers, and Paul finds, he sees something within, you know, he finds a bridge, you know, an inscription to the unknown God, right? He found a bridge. That was his bridge. He said, there's a lot of barriers here, but here's a bridge. And then from that point, he begins to tear down their, their worldview, essentially, and tell them who that unknown God is. Like, the one that you're proclaiming there, that's the one I preach to you. So he makes it relevant. He, he finds a bridge, he makes it relevant, and he begins to get to the heart of their worldview to help them to reshape. And it says that some, I'm giving it away now. It says that some... <laughs> that some are angered about this and others go, hmm, I want to hear you a bit more about this matter. So go and read. That's your homework. Go and read Acts chapter 17. All right, John chapter 4. Sorry, Clay. <laughs> Keep in mind, as we read through this, how Jesus gets to the heart of things. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of the ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, 
as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I may may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. This is where Jesus gets into the heart, right? Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and the Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at that point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see, a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore his disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this they say, the saying is true, one who sows and another reaps, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have not entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word that the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I'll hand the time back over to Brother Clay after we pray. Gracious Father, we thank you, Lord, 
We thank you for your kingdom. We thank you for Jesus. And Father, we want to be effective disciple makers. We want to live up to the calling that you have called us into to be fishers of men. Father, you have equipped us with the things that we need. And many times we get in the way and we just need to get out of the way and allow you to work in us and through us for your glory. So Father, I just pray that you would continue to guide the rest of this week in each of these sessions, our time together. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be upon us, that your peace would be in this place, and that you would uh, help to convict us where we need to be convicted, Father, and that we could yield to those things as we seek to to open ourselves more fully to what you would have for us. We thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.